0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ, I'm Jerome McDonald. NATO's taken it up a notch. We'll discuss the Allies' willingness to confront Russia. Israel's effort to expel 40,000 African asylum seekers is in the country's Supreme Court. I'll talk with a filmmaker about his documentary on the asylum seekers. And in the U.S., waitresses are subject to more harassment than in other countries. We'll think through our tipping culture. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. If Russia's strategy is to divide the U.S. and Europe, the mass expulsion of Russian diplomats from at least 22 countries offers some evidence the strategy's not working, especially since reports say that President Trump took an active role in rounding up the response to the poisoning of Sergei Skripal in Britain. Let's talk about what's happening with David Satter. He's been writing about Russia and the Soviet Union for four decades. His latest book is The Less You Know, The Better You Sleep, Russia's Road to Terror and Dictatorship Under Yeltsin and Putin. Thanks for joining us, David Satter.
1: I'm glad to be with you.
0: What do you make of what's just happened here? President Trump will not, uh, you know, goes and congratulates Vladimir Putin on his election victory doesn't mention anything about Sergei Skripal or anything that's been happening in the UK. And uh, then he rounds up very quietly without talking about it, um, 22 countries to to have a response here. Uh, He's also appointed uh, John Bolton and Mike Pompeo recently, guys who are not soft on Russia. Uh, Do we really know the Trump administration on Russia?
1: I don't think we do. Uh, I think that a lot of the discussion uh, about the Trump administration has been motivated by the desire to uh, support the collusion narrative, and uh, there isn't much evidence, really, and uh, uh, I don't expect there's going to be, at this late date, that there was any collusion. Uh, So, in a sense, we're victims of our own partisanship. Uh, If we look closely, we see that uh, the Trump administration is behaving in ways that are similar to the ways in which other administrations have behaved toward Russia. In some ways, it's actually been tougher and more realistic. Of course, there was the the very ill-advised message of congratulations to Putin on his phony election victory. But... um, If we look beyond that and beyond some of the other unfortunate rhetoric that we've seen from the Trump administration and concentrate on what they've actually done, we see that, in fact, uh, they're doing some of the right things. For example, uh, organizing this response to the Skripal murder, and I think we should think of it as a murder, even though uh, they may be still technically alive. Uh, and uh, the decision to provide defensive weapons to Ukraine, a very important decision, which is a decision that the Obama administration did not take and did not want to take.
0: The, the Trump administration is also very big on developing more nuclear weapons and getting into a nuclear weapon race with Russia. They, they, both, both leaders seem to want that.
1: I don't think that anybody particularly wants it, but the the uh, the reality is that uh, in the world that we face, I mean, we've got a, we've got multiple threats now. There's the danger from North Korea. There's the danger from uh, uh, eventually Iran, uh, and certainly Russia. Uh, these are cal- complicated calculations. Uh, the people who talk about nuclear weapons like to oversimplify the technical and logistical problems that are involved and the kind of planning that is required to make sure that our nuclear deterrent is a deterrent and that it continues to work in in new and changing circumstances. So I think that in this respect, too, the Trump administration is behaving realistically. I think one of the things that may happen is that... Uh, those people who are against Trump uh, will begin to pay attention to his real sins and uh, leave the Russia controversy to one side because I don't think there's any substance there.
0: Well, let's talk about the Russian response to what uh, the U.S. and Europe is doing. Uh, How do you read what they are, are all about these days? They seem to be more overt about uh, whatever they want to do, wherever they want to do it. I, I, you, I think, have said uh, that Russia is less shy about showing their gangster essence. Uh, what what will they do in response to this kind of thing? I mean, is, is just, um, you know, expelling some diplomats from the U.S. and Europe really satisfying?
1: Uh, I think what's important about it is that it that so many countries are involved, and there's such a show of solidarity for the British, it would have been possible for other countries to say, "Well, this is a British problem; we won't deal with it, or it doesn't involve us." But there's a general awareness that Russia cannot be given a signal that it's free to start murdering people using, you know, nerve gas on the territory of countries like Britain, uh, and that's a, that's very that. In fact, in and of itself, the fact that so many countries have taken part is very significant. Of course, expelling diplomats, uh, it creates inconvenience, but it's not real deterrence. What really needs to, to happen is for those same countries to apply sanctions to Putin
0: himself,
1: because it is clear that Putin is the person who gave that order.
0: Well, what would that look like, sanctions against Putin?
1: Visa ban, uh, seizure of assets, seizure of assets of those uh, believed to be connected to Putin. It could be very, it could be significant. At the same time, Putin would have the possibility to come to the United Nations. Uh, he would have; they, you know, diplomatic uh, contacts, would continue at some level but the symbolic importance would be would be immense and it would be extremely important because we will have identified the culprit we will have removed the self-censorship we'll have said that we're ready we're ready to 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 take action against the person who's ultimately responsible
0: Well, if that doesn't seem to be what the Trump administration really has in mind, they want to, if I'm understanding the strategy correctly, keep a dialogue with Putin open. And obviously, Donald Trump uh, says a lot of nice things about Vladimir Putin admires him. And uh, this is, uh, you know, they would never ostracize a guy like that, who's going to be in power for a while, and they want to talk to him.
1: They can talk to him, even if he if he, if there's a visa ban, and even if these measures are taken, doesn't mean that you don't talk to him. It doesn't mean it just means he can't travel, means he can't travel, and that 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 investigators are looking at his assets. It's a, it's of course uh, a problem for him in certain practical ways, but most of all, it's laying down a marker which indicates that we know who is responsible and that further measures may follow. It will give the Russian leadership definitely something to think about. Uh, Now, I don't expect this to happen with this administration, but it would have been absolutely out of the question for it to happen in the previous administration. We forget that the Obama administration initiated the policy of reset shortly after the murder of Alexander Litvinenko in London and the murder of Anna Politkovskaya, uh, Russia's outstanding investigative journalist, in Moscow. In both of those cases, there was abundant evidence that this that that the top Russian leadership had ordered the killings. So uh, it takes an American president quite a while to get around to an understanding of what has to be done. But I think that. That Trump is changing and all in his attitude toward Russia, that is, and all American presidents have gone through that. And this action with the expulsion of diplomats is a sign that he's beginning to get a realistic understanding of, of, of what the Russian regime is and what we can expect from them.
0: Ultimately, though, what is the goal of the U.S. policy do you get a change in behavior from Vladimir Putin? The guy seems to have a M.O. that is pretty well developed and um, unmovable. If, do you, what do you get if you do all this stuff and, and he doesn't change his behavior?
1: Well, for one thing, the point is to get him to change his behavior. Uh, but the long range goal is, of course, uh, to have a certain amount of influence on the Russian people. So the, there are people in Russia who who don't want to go, go to war with the whole world uh, and who understand that criminal behavior is going to elicit a tough response. The danger comes if they feel that they're abandoned by the West and that the West is willing to accommodate the criminal behavior of the regime. As long as they feel they've got some support in the West – uh, that gives them encouragement to work for a better future.
0: I'm talking with David Satter. He's the author of most recently, The Less You Know, The Better You Sleep, Russia's Road to Terror and Dictatorship Under Yeltsin and Putin. Uh, I wonder what if you could say something about Europe. Uh, Europe has a crop of politicians who are kind of soft on Russia, friendly towards Putin. Uh, does this... Change things is this rally for European politicians who are who are looking for a tougher line.
1: There are some people who are purely cynical and who are affected by uh, their economic interests um, but there are others who are capable of thinking and We have an example of the use of a weapon of mass destruction to murder somebody on the territory of a Western country with complete disregard for the laws of that country. That's got to make an impression on any thoughtful person. And uh, certainly, if that doesn't work, there's also the effect on public opinion, which, of course, will be measured by by politicians and public figures in Europe. We don't want a situation in which the Russians feel that they're free to use weapons like nerve gas indiscriminately to go after their enemies wherever they feel their enemies uh, are happen to be living, whether it's Britain, the U.S., Germany, France, or any place else. And I think that uh, the actions that have been taken are an indication that a lot of people understand that.
0: Is there any chance Russia would – Vladimir Putin would feel more secure after the election, that he would enter a new phase of uh, more platonic behavior?
1: No, because uh, he understands that, the, that, the, 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 that his regime is based on lies and manipulation and corruption. And he he knows better than anyone the long list of crimes of which he is guilty. And as a result, the, the, the regime feels congenitally un, uh, insecure and unstable. And the only way to reassure, reassure its supporters and to rally the population around such a corrupt leadership is to create the impression that uh, – the outside world is against them to create, you know, to, to focus their attention on an external foe and that's what they're doing. And that's what they'll probably continue to do until the moment when they feel the costs are too high. That's the significance of this action is that it reminds them that there can be
0: a cost. Is there any cost to meddling in elections? Can they, do they still feel they should be able to do that?
1: well they'll probably continue to meddle in, in in elections the same rule applies of course if 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 the punishment is severe enough uh, that will discourage them i mean they are capable of 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 thinking rationally at least to that extent but their ability to limit to meddle in our elections is much more limited than the press coverage would suggest uh, in the great ocean of internet traffic, uh, what the and the relatively small investment that they made, uh, it would it takes quite a lot of imagination to 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 think that they actually accomplished something. I mean, they should be punished and they should be discouraged, but this is not on the same scale of seriousness as carrying out murders. Uh, on the territory of of a country like britain or the u.s or for that matter the crimes they're committing against their own people in russia and so we've you know for partisan reasons we've allowed some of the uh, election meddling to distract us from from issues that actually are a lot more important
0: Very interesting. David Satter, thanks for joining us. He's uh, been writing about Russia and the Soviet Union for four decades. His latest book is The Less You Know, The Better You Sleep, Russia's Road to Terror and Dictatorship Under Yeltsin and Putin. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. After the break, we'll hear about a documentary on African asylum seekers in Israel. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The government in Israel announced in January that an estimated 38,000 asylum seekers, mostly from Eritrea and Sudan, had three months to leave the country. If they refused to leave, they faced indefinite imprisonment. Israel's Supreme Court has stepped in with an injunction. There's been big protests against the policy. Filmmaker Brad Rothschild uh, followed several African migrants for his film, African Exodus, and the film makes its Chicago premiere tomorrow night at 7 p.m. at the AMC River East Theater, and Brad Rothschild joins us. Nice to talk with you, Brad. Nice to talk to you. For the people who are hearing about African migrants, uh, Asylum seekers in Israel for the first time. How did they get there? What what is going? What is their story?
2: Well, everybody obviously has a, a different story, but uh, the the asylum seekers who are there now are primarily from Sudan and Eritrea, and they have made their way through various means uh, from their home countries to Egypt, and then through the Sinai Desert uh, and into Israel.
0: And being in Egypt and being a migrant is not a great deal. A lot of them want to get out
2: a lot of them want to get out. The route is uh, perilous. Many of them uh, suffered a great deal uh, along the way, including uh, robbery, rape. Uh, Some people were protesting in Cairo in 2005. Uh, uh, Sudanese and uh, an undetermined number were murdered by the uh, Egyptian security services. So it's it's not an easy path to get into Israel.
0: Now, is, so a lot of them have been there a long time, and you've got in the documentary pictures and video of their, their children, and they're, uh, they're hanging out, they're singing uh, songs, Israel songs and things. Yeah. It's, it's a, a, you know, they, they're kind of uh, in there now.
2: Yeah, certainly. Um, there are people who are there for a decade at this point, and uh, many of them speak Hebrew fluently. Uh, the children who were born there certainly feel... Israeli, that Hebrew is their first language, and they they don't know any country other than Israel. So there are people there with uh, with deep roots at this point.
0: How did you come to make this film? Why did you want to tell their stories?
2: Well, I I heard about this uh, for the first time in two thousand seven, and uh, it was it was told to me by somebody who was working uh, for an organization that was trying to assist uh, Darfuri refugees. And at the time, it seemed pretty straightforward here. There were a group of people escaping genocide in Darfur, and they were coming to Israel to save them. So the, my initial thought was, this is great. This is We can show something about how Israel, a country founded by uh, refugees and survivors of the Holocaust, how they will help and deal with uh, other genocide survivors in, in their midst. Um, And the story took many turns since then. And unfortunately, it was not quite as uh, clear cut as I thought it was going to be when I first started making this.
0: Um, Were you surprised when the government announced ultimately that they wanted to – and they they previously uh, expelled some asylum seekers to uh, Rwanda and Uganda, and then they wanted to do it in in bulk here in January?
2: Yeah, it's no surprise. And what happened previously was uh, what they call voluntary transfer. So people – Uh, voluntarily took a one-way ticket out of uh, israel in exchange and they got a certain amount of money to go to rwanda and uganda but it's certainly it seemed more coercive than than voluntary to me but this is no this this recent decision is no real surprise to anybody who's been closely following this it's been clear to me it became clear to me while i was making the film that uh, one day we would just wake up and the refugees or the asylum seekers or other would all be gone because the government just does not want them there.
0: We've got a clip from your film, African Exodus. And in this clip, we hear from Eitan Schwartz. He's a senior advisor to the mayor of Tel Aviv for international affairs, followed by an activist and another asylum seeker. And they're talking about the um, irony of this happening in Israel. For a Jew to say about another human being, this person is a cancer, means... Um, you've forgotten a major, major part of your people's history. We cannot allow ourselves to say about other people cancer.
3: First, uh, like I think I even posted in Facebook, uh, you know, that some, uh, something that Hitler said because it was very similar.
4: Referring to humans in terms that were used against Jews
0: in dark periods is horrible. I can't accept
5: that.
6: I couldn't believe like uh, like I, I cried a lot during that
5: time I read also in 1945 about Anna Frank Eleviss so great book night I, I read it There's the
2: same problems that happened in Darfur it happened to Jewish in Germany.
6: When we say we, we will never forget what happened there, I think we kind of did forget
0: To me the worst revelation in this process, was to discover that, at least in this sense, we Jews might have forgotten something over the
5: past two generations.
0: That's a clip from the film African Exodus, It's making its Chicago premiere tomorrow night at 7 p.m. at the AMC River East. And it's about uh, the asylum seekers in Israel, mostly from Eritrea and Sudan. uh, And Brad Rothschild, the filmmaker, is with us. Uh, Brad, I understand you're in Chicago making another film.
2: That's right. I'm working on a a project about Tamar Manasseh, who is the founder of an organization called MASK, which is Mothers and Men Against Senseless Killings. And Tamar is with us on the line, and it's nice to meet you, Tamar Manasseh.
5: I am. Hello. It's nice meeting you as well. Um, What are you?
0: When you heard about this, I mean, you're a rabbinical student in addition to being the executive director of Mothers Against Senseless Killings. What do you what do you make of this situation?
5: Um, This situation is heartbreaking for me on so many different levels. Me being a Jew of African descent and me being a black woman in America, black people don't have a homeland. There is no black land. There's no motherland or homeland for black people. There is no African-American land that does not exist. All the other cultures and all the other people in this country, they have a place where they came from. We are from the continent of Africa for the most part, and that's all we understand. That's what we got after slavery. Me as a Jew, my homeland was Israel because the homeland of all Jews is Israel. But when this happened, it became apparent to me that, no, not even there. Me as being a Jew, I don't even have a homeland there because I'm still black. And that was just something that was never supposed to happen. No Jew is ever supposed to feel like they aren't welcome in Eretz Israel. They just shouldn't ever feel like that. And I don't feel like I'm welcome there. I wrote a piece um, a couple of months ago in the Jewish Forward about why I can't go to Israel. What if I lose my purse? What if I'm it's stolen? What if I don't have my passport? I don't have my ID. How do I know that I won't get deported to uh, Rwanda or Uganda or anywhere else just because I'm black how do I know that I'll still be protected I don't know that because they don't want people that look like me in my country in our country in the homeland for Jews and I just it I don't understand how that works and it breaks my heart that we even have to go through this in a world where Jews have been so persecuted and where they have been expelled and they've been mistreated and they've been murdered and it's kind of like, why would you want to do that to someone else?
0: How do you extrapolate and think about this in terms of the United States where we're deporting lots of people? I mean, the Obama administration was deporting 400,000 people a year. And it, um, in Israel, at least they're giving them some money to get out. It's, uh, it, um, it's. How do you think about what it, how it relates to us?
5: I don't think... I I mean, like, I don't see really, I mean, honestly, much of a similarity. Because of what Israel was founded on, America was not founded on that. For the reason that Israel came into being is not the reason that that Israel came into being. It's not the same thing. And it's kind of like, you know, just not too long ago, Israel is a very young country. Israel and my mom are the same age. And... This is not the first time that we've seen this in Israel. It's not just the deportations. It is the treatment of Jewish women at the wall. It is the treatment of other Africans and other people who have come into the country. It is the Jim Crow South. That's what Israel reminds me of right now. It's 1958 Mississippi. And it's terrifying for me. And it's really hard. You know, sometimes people ask me, you know, you're black and you're a woman. Why would you want to be a Jew, too? Because they see what's going on in the world. And it's really sad that I have to still explain that, you know, all of these things are happening, but I still have to be a Jew because that's what I am. It's not about the Jewish people. It's more about my relationship with God. And I wish that we all understood that. I wish we could all see that, but they clearly don't get that in Israel. And for me to go there and see other Africans being expelled, I couldn't live in I couldn't be in a place like that. I couldn't turn a blind eye to that. Um, in America, just as many people as we've deported, we've let in. That's not what's happening with Israel.
0: Brad, it, there's been a lot of protests in Israel. There's uh, a Supreme Court case which seems to be – has some traction to uh, avoid deportation for the asylum seekers. Uh, how, do you, how do you gauge the response to this?
2: Well, I think uh, what we see is that civil society is actually working because the government are, is being responsive to the protesters. When there are enough people in Israel who are saying, Not in my name. We do not want to deport these people because these are people in need and they're coming to us for help. I have not met one uh, asylum seeker who wants to stay in Israel longer than they absolutely have to. To a person, they all say, when the situation in my home country improves, I want to go back there. It's very hard to find an Eritrean who says, my whole life I've dreamed about going to Israel and, and living there and making a life for myself there. No, they, they want to go home. So I think that uh, what we're seeing now, and there were 25,000 Israelis who protested on Saturday night in Tel Aviv, what we're seeing is that the that the everyday people, the, at the grassroots level, people are saying to the government, not in our name.
0: D- and the Supreme Court case, uh, does, does it sound like the Supreme Court has to basically rescue these people and, and, and keep the injunction on? Or does it, because the government seems to want to do this no matter what?
2: The government does want to do it. And the Supreme Court, as in many uh, instances in Israel, proves to be the, the last uh, stand of uh, democracy.
0: Um, what do you think people will get if they come and see the film? Uh, what will people understand about uh, the situation of these uh, asylum seekers?
2: I think uh, most people don't even know that the problem exists. So when people see the film, they'll, they, the reaction so far has been like, wow, I really had no idea that there were so many Africans seeking asylum in Israel. And this, is, this explains a lot in a short period of time. Um, and I think people will reevaluate some preconceived notions that they may have about uh, asylum seekers, about Israel, and uh, just about uh, human beings. Tamar, what do you hope people will see in the film?
5: Um, I hope they, like Brad just stated, I hope they will see something that they hadn't seen before. I hope that it will touch their humanity. That's what I hope. I really hope that they'll stop seeing this as something political or, you know, it's something that's happening a thousand miles, two thousand miles away. No, 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 no. I want them to see this as a very human thing. This can happen to any of us. This has happened to us before. And now is the time you know about it. You have to do something about it. I'm hoping that it will motivate people to want to get involved, to even ask the question, what can I do to help? or to even have an opinion about it, because not enough people know that this is happening in the world. And this is something that we really need to care about, because if it can happen there, it can happen anywhere. If it can happen to those people, it can happen to anyone.
0: Now, Tamara, I know some of the box office is going to help your organization, uh, Mothers Against Senseless Killings. It's, it's received a lot of attention. Could you tell people more about it if they, if they haven't heard about it?
5: Mothers and Men Against Senseless Killings is um, um, a community building and anti-violence organization. And we're based in Inglewood and all summer we're out on a corner and we give out food every night. We do. We cook dinner every day. We give out hugs. We provide a safe place for kids to play we mend the bonds of the community. So we we reintroduce the old to the young, and we really make sure that people understand we're all kind of in this together. And so we've been around for four years now, and we've actually seen on our block the sharpest decline in gun violence without any additional resources being added in the city. So we're really, really proud of what we've been able to accomplish out there. And um, this summer we'll be spreading to Rogers Park, and potentially Albany Park will be in a few other places around the city, and we have different uh, chapters uh, all over the country.
0: So if people want to help you with uh, Mothers Against Senseless Killings, they can they really just bring a lawn chair and start doing this?
5: Yes. Yes. That's it. Bring your lawn chair. Yes, bring a lawn chair and and just an open mind and an open heart and be ready to give some hugs. And yeah, absolutely. Come on down. It's that easy. It's not so hard to change the world as people would like to think it is. It's not. It's just as simple as doing something. It's not doing everything. It's doing something. And sometimes you have to start as small as a lawn chair. And that's what we've been able to do. And so, yeah, we welcome anyone to come and sit out with us to come and have dinner with us, to come and interact with the kids in the neighborhood. We welcome that.
0: Um, Brad, how far along are you on the film about Mothers Against Senseless Killings?
2: Well, I I spent uh, much of last summer on the block with Tamar. So we we did a lot of filming. I would say principal photography is pretty much done, with some exceptions, and we're entering into the post-production phase. So we're hopeful uh, by the fall to have, uh, have a completed film.
0: Well, it sounds exciting, and I hope a lot of people check out African Exodus tomorrow night. It's happening at 7 p.m. at the AMC River East Theater. Brad Rothschild is the filmmaker, and uh, the African Exodus is about uh, what's happening in Israel, with Israel uh, announcing in January that an estimated 38,000 asylum seekers, mostly from Eritrea and Sudan, had three months to leave the country. You get to meet them in the film. And Tamar Manasseh, founder and executive director of Mothers Against Senseless Killing and a rabbinical student here, thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the film and your efforts. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank
5: you for having me.
0: Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the origins and the effects of America's tipping culture. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Me Too movement has brought down big names over the past six months. Worldview's production assistant, Anna Waters, brings us this interview on how the conversation about sexual harassment is expanding into day-to-day life.
5: Harvey Weinstein.
3: Matt Lauer. Mario Vitale. Charlie Rose. Kevin Spacey. Senator Al Franken. Lucy C.K. has just responded to accusations of sexual misconduct. Systemic change for victims of harassment by non-celebrities has yet to come. One of those groups? Waitresses. According to the Restaurant Opportunity Center, 90% of women in the American restaurant industry report receiving unwanted sexual advances at work, and half of women say these interactions occur on a weekly basis. While harassment occurs at restaurants around the world, some argue that America's unique tipping culture contributes to the problem here, as U.S. waitresses can't respond to harassing customers because they depend on them for tips. Joining us is Steve Dublinica, a former waiter and author of Keep the Change, a book that delves into the history of tipping in America and how the practice hurts people in the service industry. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Anna. So where did the concept of tipping come from? Why does it exist? Well, tipping
4: started in Europe sometime around the time of Henry VIII. Um, What people did for entertainment back then, or what the rich did, is they would go from manor to manor and have parties. So they got into the habit of tipping the footmen and the maids and the valets, and they called these little monetary remunerations veils. However, instead of it just being a a nice thing, like a token of gratitude, the servants began to expect it as a matter of course. So once it became an entrenched practice, people began worrying what would happen if I didn't give the servant a veil. You know, they were worried, oh, someone may spill gravy on me at the dining room table, or my horse might be misshot and lame. So early on in the history of tipping, we found fear of what happens when you don't tip. The other thing we see happening concurrently is stealing from the tips because the lords of the manor began collecting their share of the veils. And that's a practice that we see till today.
3: Okay, so it started with lords and manors in Europe and somehow made its way to the U.S. How did that happen?
4: Well, after the Industrial Revolution and people moved out of the farms in Europe and they went into the cities in the Industrial Revolution, and the people that used to be scullery, maids, and footmen were now waiters and bartenders and working on the railroad. And it became uh, tipping. And a lot of people think that the word tip means to ensure prompt service, but actually that's an etymological urban legend. The word tip probably comes from phrases meaning to have a drink, like when you would go to a bartender and you would give him a coin and say, "Here, have a drink on me." So it was a way of saying thank you. And when you look at the word for tip in different languages like propinar in Spanish or pourboire in French, the word tip also means to drink or to have a drink. So that's where we think the word tip came from. Tipping, however, did not exist in the United States prior to the Civil War. There are very, very few instances of tipping recorded. But after the Civil War, a lot of Americans traveled to Europe and they would see tipping in all the restaurants and the hotels and they brought it back to the United States to show how sophisticated they were. You know, they started tipping people. And so in 1865, you had no tipping in this country. But by 1910... You had millions of people working for tips. And the reason for that is because companies realized we can bolster our bottom line. We can have the public subsidize our wages. And the first company to really do that was the Pullman Palace Car Company, and they operated sleeping cars for the new railroad that was crisscrossing the United States. And they exclusively hired ex-slaves from the South and they paid them next to nothing, and they told the public, we don't pay these people anything, they depend on your generosity. So they said, this is great, you tip the porter, we don't have to pay them or pay them much. And there was a great reaction to that, like a lot of newspaper articles at the time said that this is just slavery in a new guise, or you are using the plight of the ex-slave to make profits. And all of a sudden, you had anti-tipping leagues, you had anti-tipping laws and things of that nature. There was even a presidential platform plank against tipping. But of course, none of that came to pass. And we have tipping till today.
3: If tipping became so entrenched here after slavery, is that part of why tipping has stayed and become something that waitstaff depend on for a living wage here, whereas in many European countries, it seems like tipping is sort of just a cherry on top. It's nice, but they already make enough to live on.
4: Well, you know, there's a saying, why is a French waiter rude? Because he can be. He has job protections. He belongs to a union. He has health care. He has a set vacation time. American waiters most often do not have sick time, do not have vacation time, do not have health care. And what a lot of Americans don't understand is that a waiter is paid a tipping wage, which is usually below minimum wage, in the hope that the tip a customer leaves will bring their wage to minimum wage and beyond. So if a waiter doesn't get tipped, they're making below minimum wage.
3: So later in the show, we're going to talk more specifically about sexual harassment in the restaurant industry and how it relates to tipping. And as someone who's worked in and managed restaurants, I'm curious if you could speak to how restaurants handle sexual harassment. Is there often infrastructure in place to deal with harassment claims from wait staff?
4: Um, No. I was a waiter from 1999 to 2008, and sexual harassment was rampant, rampant. There were no systems in place.
3: You have a lot of criticism for tipping in your blog and in your book and in this interview. So do you think that we should get rid of tipping? Do you think we could change it for the better?
4: I'm on record as saying that I would be very happy to do away with tipping. But in order to get rid of tipping in this country, you would have to determine what is a livable wage. And then you would have to pay the waiters that wage. Where would that money come from? Would it come out of the owner's profits? Are you going to give wait staff sick time? Are you going to give them vacation time and, and workplace protections you know, so they can avoid um, being exploited in any sort of way? You know, but no, we're not there yet because a lot of restaurants operate on the model of this is a cheap, disposable, young, very transient workforce that's not going to stay here long. They're going to come in, you know, a lot of waiters and waitresses are students or they're pursuing other careers and they come in for a brief time and none of them stay long enough to to make a change.
3: Steve Dublinica is a former waiter and author of Keep the Change, a book that delves into the history of tipping in America and its impact on people in the service industry. Steve, thanks so much for joining us.
0: No problem. Companies and workplaces are dealing with sexual harassment in many ways, especially after the Me Too movement began last fall. But as we've heard, it's hard for waitresses to confront harassing customers. Here's a conversation on the subject from Worldview's production assistant, Anna Waters.
3: With me now is Remy, a waitress at a restaurant on the north side. She's using her income, much of which comes from tips, to pay her rent and support her college education. We're referring to Remy by her first name to protect her privacy. Remy, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. As a waitress, your income relies on customers voluntarily paying you more than they're legally required to. Do you feel like there's a relationship between tipping and sexual harassment? Has there been one in your experience? I think so.
6: I definitely have had experiences where you have to balance the whole the customer is always right and being able to make them feel welcome in the workplace as a waitress. Um, But at the same time, their ability to give me money means that they can look at me a different way, talk to me a certain way. And that is just not what the job entails. So I think there definitely is a relation between them feeling entitled to treat staff some way that they think is okay versus the money that they put in our pockets.
3: And is that something that you've experienced on a personal level or more just the larger culture of the restaurants? Um, The larger culture
6: is very present, but on a personal level I have as well. Um, And it can be anything really small from just commenting on outfits or asking really personal questions about you. Standing at the hostess stand can be difficult sometimes when you're getting unwanted attention because you can't leave. Your job is to be there. Your job is to please customers and to take their orders and to answer the phones and to be by the computer. And so, for instance, having a married couple – Um, The woman will go to the bathroom and the man will be standing there and asking questions. Oh, that's a really lovely top. Wow, I like your necklace. Necklace hangs very low on the body. And it's just kind of this visual that you're not trying to present. But at the same time, when you do work for tips and your wages do come primarily from tips, anything helps. And so it's kind of wrestling between making them feel like they are valued as a customer but also just trying to balance that with, like, your own human dignity and not being objectified by them. Like, I was in a relationship for most of the time that I've been serving. And so trying to give customers individual attention and make them feel special, but at the same time sometimes when they're taking that as more of a they can flirt or advance or make comments about you and the way you look and the way you present yourself, you almost feel dishonest in some ways because you don't want this unwanted attention even though it's helping you. But at the same time, it seems like a huge overreaction to tell a customer at the front of the house, I feel uncomfortable by the way you're doing X, Y, Z, Um, and also definitely would not go over very well with their spouse or whoever else is with them as well. So you kind of just have to take it. And that is also difficult sometimes because you're getting this attention and you're not wanting it, but you also know that it's helping you.
3: Yeah, that's something I'm so curious about. Have you ever really thought about what the line would be for you between harassment that you just have to handle to get a tip or harassment that you'd have to say something about? That's hard because I feel like that line hasn't been reached yet.
6: And I feel like almost instinctively, if that line was being approached, I would know. But also at the same time, you're almost desensitized a little bit when things happen over and over and over again. Um, and so, no, I, I haven't really had like a hard line in my mind besides like like a very large physical touch or some other kind of thing that made me feel very unsafe.
3: Are there any things that management at your restaurant has done to tell you that they support you if you're being harassed? Is there sort of an infrastructure in place for someone you would talk to or report that? Yes. Um, I have very, very good relationships with my managers. I
6: have talked to them about certain situations, certain scenarios, um, and they really do have a zero tolerance policy.
3: Do you have any specific examples of a conversation you had with management about someone who was making you feel uncomfortable? So there
6: was an instance where um, I was hostessing and I was wearing this cute shirt. It's just like a black T-shirt that has fun little patches like French fries, a heart, a martini, whatever. And a customer was ordering something to go and mentioned it and noticed it. Oh, that's a really cool shirt. I really like the way it looks Um, and at one point asked if he could touch one of the patches and I didn't know what to say besides okay because it's kind of a weird request but also it's not so weird that I felt okay just being like nope I'm done like not gonna do it so he came and he touched the patch on my shoulder and then one that was like closer to my collarbone and I felt pretty uncomfortable Um, and like finished transaction said goodbye and told my manager later that night about it Um, and she told me, I really wish you would have told me right away when this happened. And also if you can write down a description and whatnot, like I will make sure that like something like this doesn't happen again. If it does like come to me directly as soon as possible, because you don't deserve to be treated like this. And also if you need me to take the front of the house, or if you need a minute to go and collect yourself, or if you're feeling weird, I'm here to talk to you and you also have time to do that. And I think that was important for me in order to just feel validated because sometimes we think that we're making it up. It's all in our heads. Like, this isn't real. Like, I should be expected to deal with this. This is part of the job. When in reality, like making you feel unsafe at work is not okay.
3: How has having a woman as your manager impacted you? Do you think that knowing maybe she's had similar experience has helped you open up to her and tell you when you're uncomfortable? I definitely think
6: so. Sexual harassment doesn't just go one way. It's not always men perpetrating on women. But the reality is that a lot of women experience it more. And the fact that she as a woman has had similar experiences makes me not feel like I'm crying wolf to someone who doesn't understand where I'm coming from. Do
3: you think that America should keep tipping and a lower tip weighed along with that? Are there any changes you'd make to the American tipping system if it were up to you? Um
6: I think in an abstract way tipping is like an incentive as a lot of like managers and employers tell you like the harder you work the more you'll get tipped and that I don't think is a super effective culture just because there are nights where me or my coworkers would be like busting our butts to get food on the table to make sure everyone's pleased to make sure that we're having a good night and we still will get nothing. And I just don't think it's very fair in terms of not being able to be paid a living wage just right off the bat. Why do I have to over and over again prove that I'm doing a good job? Like, why do I need this like carrot dangling in front of me that may or may not even be there to begin with to be there in order to make sure that I'm doing a good job? I think it kind of invalidates the trust that we put on to people in the hospitality and the service industries. And if I could change it so that everyone has a living wage, I think that would be definitely the most like ethical option.
3: Remy is a waitress at a restaurant on the north side and we've been discussing the relationship between tipping and sexual harassment. Remy thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you.
0: That was Worldview production assistant Anna Waters. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Gali Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. If you're around tonight at 5.30 want to show up at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, you will see a great conversation between me and Yasha Monk. We're going to talk about the challenge to liberal democracy. Hope to see you there at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs at 5.30 today. Mike Gilmore engineered today. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been